Our psalm of the day comes from Psalm 28. To you, O Lord, I call, my rock, be not deaf to me, lest if you be silent to me, I become like those who go down to the pit. Hear the voice of my pleas for mercy when I cry to you for help, when I lift up my hands toward your most holy sanctuary. Do not drag me off with the wicked, with the workers of evil who speak peace with their neighbors while evil is in their hearts. Give to them according to their work and according to the evil of their deeds. Give to them according to the work of their hands. Render them their due reward because they do not regard the works of the Lord or the works, uh, work of his hands. He will tear them down and build them up no more. Blessed be the Lord, for he has heard the voice of my pleas for mercy. The Lord is my strength and my shield. In him my heart trusts and I am helped. My heart exults and with my song I give thanks to him. The Lord is the strength of his people. He is the saving refuge of his anointed. Oh, save your people and bless your heritage. Be their shepherd and carry them forever. All men are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers, and the flowers fall. Our epistle lesson this morning is found in 1 Corinthians 6. We are reading verses 1 through 20. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more, then, matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers But brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud, even your own brothers. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. All things are lawful for me. But not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. And God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. 
Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. This is the word of the Lord. Father, as we come to your word this morning, and a difficult passage with many different controversies and things going on in this Corinthian church, we come and we trust you that by your spirit you would apply these same things to our day. We ask you to speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. Amen. When I was uh, in my first year of pastoring in Washington, D.C., Melissa and I made the mistake of scheduling to drive out of Washington down I-95 south to visit my parents for Thanksgiving. We didn't know the flow of traffic at that point, that this was the worst day of traffic ever in the whole entire year if you wanted to exit Washington, D.C. What was normally a 45-minute trip took two to three hours just to get past Fredericksburg, Virginia. So on the way back... We left a day early, and we left very early in the morning or late in the afternoon. We're trying to make it back in uh, the evening to miss all the traffic. As we're coming back into town, there are lanes in the center that will either flow north or south depending on the time of day, and people who are native there call them the suicide lanes. There's no shoulder. It is simply concrete barriers and lanes. And so the lanes, the suicide lanes flowing north were open, and so I drive the family Oldsmobile silhouette into the suicide lanes and then go suicidal speeds up this racing north, trying to beat it. Suddenly, our car began to malfunction. Things were not operating right. I could see the temperature gauge rising sharply. Uh, the car began to slow down. We were now going 45 miles an hour in the suicide lanes. I'm thinking we're going to get run over, and there's no place to get off. There's no shoulder to pull off on. What are we going to do? What is happening to us was kind of the question. And so we finally were able to exit, crawling along at about 10 miles an hour. The car is limping, barely moving. And I focus on the presenting problem. The presenting problem was that the engine was overheating. So into the gas station I go, I buy some coolant, we pop the hood and we sit there for at half an hour and then we start driving again. We make it one exit and the same thing happens again. We're not going over 25 miles an hour now. The car is clearly dying. We call AAA, we have it towed, it's taken in. And it's then diagnosed for us that we had a broken drive belt. And it was then explained to me the significance of the drive belt for the health of your automobile. That nothing works if the drive belt is broken. And that that's why the engine was actually overheating. And so, yes, it was interesting that I put the coolant in, and that may have helped somewhat for a slight moment. But it didn't solve anything because it wasn't addressing the underlying issue, what was really animating my car's breakdown. And this is always the case when it comes to our spiritual lives, is that we have presenting issues, we have manifestations of things that are going on in our lives, but it's essential for us to get to the underlying issues. What is really animating the problem? What is going on? And here in the Corinthian congregation, Paul is addressing the presenting issues, and they're important. In chapter 6, we see that the presenting issues are greed 
and that they are taking one another to court before the Romans into the Roman law court. And then we see that there's also this continued issue of sexual immorality. Those are the presenting issues. But if we really want to get inside of this passage and understand what's going on and how it applies to us today, it's very helpful for us to consider what was underlying. Where was the drive belt broken? Where was the system just not going to work? And of course, that those commitments in the system were then leading them to overheat and to live dysfunctional, compromised, and contradictory lives. Because that is what has happened here. That God's people, he has set apart for himself, as Paul writes in in chapter 1, verse 2, that they are the saints of God. They seem far from saintly here. And Paul is addressing them about the problems and the underlying issues. He's going to address both the presenting and the underlying here. And so what is it that's happening and what happens to us? What were the underlying issues in Corinth that created this type of ethos where brothers would take one another to court and not think anything of it? Where people would have sex with a prostitute and think it was perfectly normal and acceptable? What are these underlying issues that led into such compromise, such contradiction, and such confusion in the Corinthian congregation? There's two things for us to consider this morning. And the first is that in verses 1 through 8, we see that we smuggle our selfish individuality into the church. This is what had happened in Corinth, is that many of these Greco-Roman converts from pagan backgrounds who had converted, they were Gentiles, had smuggled something into the church. And that that is very common and ordinary and goes on every time a sinner confesses faith in Jesus Christ. And what they had smuggled into the church was this selfish, hyper-individuality. That the Corinthians are very much like Americans in so many ways. And that they brought this to the table... And they had begun to make divisions among themselves around various leaders. And what seems to have happened is that now in those divisions, they were beginning to sue one another. And so Paul asks the question, he says, When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? And when he uses the word unrighteous, he's referring to the unbelieving world, those who are not convicted by our Lord Jesus and don't serve him. And so you're taking your case against one another, and you're dragging one brother into the Roman court in order to get your way. And he says this is remarkably wrong. And you'll note that he has a biting sense of humor here. And it is a piece of irony because we've seen that these Corinthian teachers who were misleading the congregation classed themselves as those who were wise. This was part of their theological and doctrinal error. And Paul asked them a question. If you follow with me in verse 5, he says, I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? So yes, you're boasting about your wisdom, this elevated knowledge that you have of God, and yet there's no one wise enough amongst you to settle something that is just silly. And he says, this is to your shame. You think you're so wise, but you're incredibly immature. 
You're acting like sophomores. Grow up is the impetus of what Paul's saying because he's saying that your identity doesn't even match up with all the dignity that God has assigned you. You notice in verses 1 and 2 that Paul says something that's kind of strange to us today. He says, look, you're going to judge the world in the future. That the saints are going to be God's elements that he uses to judge the world. And they're going to judge angels. He says, and you can't even handle these silly disputes among you. How out of line are you? But this is what was happening. But the Roman court system was particularly known for its corruption. And we gain a sense from this background of what was actually happening. The Roman courts were known to favor the wealthy and the upper class. And it was widely known that most of the court cases that were brought to the Roman courts were brought by the upper class against someone who was lower class. And the upper class would hire a rhetorician, a lawyer, who would then go speak on their behalf and oftentimes provide a bribe to the judge in order to weigh in on behalf of their client. That was the scene. One satirical play says it like this, Of what avail are laws to be where money rules alone, and the poor suitor can never succeed? So a lawsuit is nothing more than a public auction. That was the context of the Roman court in Corinth. This is what people just knew they were up against when they were sued by the upper class. And so the Corinthian wisdom teachers who we also believe uh, to have the markings of those who were wealthy in the congregation, were misleading them, and they were taking lower-class brothers to court in order to win their case and have their way. And Paul is exercised by it because they were reflecting the norms of Corinthian culture, that it was normal for Corinthians to sue Corinthians. That was acceptable. But Paul says, no, inside the household of faith, it's unacceptable. That's not how we handle our disputes. You don't go drag it into public, and you also don't just sweep it under the rug, but rather you let the community work it out, that you allow for arbitration, and you allow for forgiveness, and you allow for confrontation. Because this is how the household of faith is to work together. But yet they were simply behaving like they did prior to their conversion. But it's an important question for us to ask, why does Paul assume that we can handle disputes internally? Why does he believe that we have that capacity? And this is one of the most unique things that the gospel does bring into the Christian community, is a capacity to handle conflict and disputes. Because you see, typically people are scared to death when conflict breaks out. Because they say, oh, well, we don't, we don't want to address the issues, and we don't want uh, to offend anybody, and we don't want to say so-and-so's doing this, because bless their heart, we all know that everybody has good intentions. I can tell you that that's false, because I often have bad intentions, too. <laughs> That we need to get past some of those southern little niceties that we want to say to excuse things. And that we have to be graciously willing to confront and talk about things when there is a problem. And that we can do so. 
And that when we confront, we also have to be willing and open that we need to examine ourselves, that sometimes we may be missing it or we may have misunderstood something. But friends, that's all acceptable inside the Christian community. And why is that? It's because the gospel frees it. The gospel commissions us to do it, in fact, because we're all aware enough that we don't stand in front of God based on our performance. We don't stand in front of God based on having it all together. We don't stand in front of God because we've done everything right. And so our standing in front of God doesn't depend upon that moment, whether someone has a serious grievance against us. Most people are scared to death when someone sits down with them and says, hey, look, there's a problem and you did something that offended me. It seems like the world has just spun out of control for most folks. But the thing is, as a Christian, you know that that person only knows, doesn't even know the half of it. <laughs> when someone sits down and wants to confront something with me, it's normally very easy because I just want to say, well, you really ought to talk to my wife. <laughs> um, you, if you really want to know the case, um, you know, please do that. And it's okay. Friends, it's not hard for us to say sorry to a brother or sister that we've offended and we've done wrong towards, because we know what it is to confess our sins to God and to be relieved from those. And so it's then a small thing to do that in a social setting. It should be. This is what Paul was saying, that you're freed from defensiveness, you're freed from all of that care and concern, that now you can be rightly related to your brothers and sisters, and that involves a gracious type of ethos an environment where we can freely confess sins, where we can freely go to one another and say, help me understand this. I'm struggling with what you said. But the Corinthians had brought all of their selfish individual impulses into the congregation, and people were using and abusing one another. See what Paul says? He says, to have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. That they were taking one another to court was a defeat. It was a discredit to them. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. And this is what was happening in Corinth, is that they were more interested in their own personal gain than they were the reputation and the life of the church community and also of their fellow brothers. And that is where selfish individuality gets out of control. So that's the first piece of what's going on, that underlying issue that was driving this behavior of going to court with one another. The second piece, though, in verses 12 through 20, we see that we also hoist our notions of spirituality into the gospel. Remember that these Corinthians had been Greco-Roman pagans, that is, they had worshipped all kinds of different and false gods, and then they convert, but in that conversion, it doesn't mean they're perfected. And so what they do is that they, we all tend to hoist our notions of spirituality and our notions of God, we tend to hoist that onto the gospel. And it's interesting what's taking place here in Corinth. In chapter 6, when you arrive in verses 12 through 20, this is actually a very difficult passage, and many people find it hard to read. You'll notice that the ESV provides some phrases that are in quotation marks for you. What those are attempting to delineate is Paul is addressing the slogans of these teachers of Corinthian wisdom that he is opposing. 
They had certain mantras that they were presenting, memes that they were using in the community to espouse their theology. And Paul here will list those slogans and then rebut them. Okay? And so this is what he's doing. I just want you to follow carefully these slogans. The first one is found in verse 12. All things are lawful for me. This is what the Corinthian wisdom teachers were espousing, that all things are lawful for me. The second quote that he provides for us here is found in verse 13. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The ESV, I think, makes a mistake here, as most commentators would agree, that the quotation mark should extend to the end of that sentence. It shouldn't be cut off at the word food, but the slogan that was being taught, food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. And then the final one you'll find in verse 18, Paul says, flee from sexual immorality, and then he gives the slogan, every sin, the word other is actually not in the original text, every sin a person commits is outside the body. That is what the teachers were espousing is that every sin someone commits is outside the body. So what is all of this? Where was it coming from? It's helpful to know the background of much of this. As we said over the the weeks leading up to this difficult passage, that the background lay in Greco-Roman philosophy that viewed the physical body as transient and trivial, that the actions that were done in the body didn't really matter. But if you were wise and you were enlightened, then you were able to transcend the physical body and spirituality was about your soul relating to God. So what you do in the body doesn't matter. That is what these teachers built on good, solid Greco-Roman philosophy that was being imported into the church. This is what was being proclaimed And Paul has to then stand and say no, that the gospel comes out of a different place, that it has a different view of creation, it has a different view of ethics. And so consider Paul's rebuttal of this. If you follow in verse 13, he says, the body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And then he continues in verse 14, and God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? And so Paul here is correcting their view of spirituality, where they said to be truly spiritual is to be released from bodily concerns. It's for your soul to relate to God who is in heaven. And Paul says, no, 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 no. Physical bodies are important, and what you do in the body is incredibly spiritual. And so he's correcting their misguided notions. And then he goes on further to say that we are the dwelling place of the Spirit in verse 19. He says our bodies were bought with a price through Jesus Christ. And friends, this is why Christians assert that what we do in the body is important. Why do we do that? Because Jesus' body was raised from the dead. You see, God's plans for salvation are not to whisk you away to a cloud to play a harp and sing eternal praise songs. God's plans for salvation are to renew his physical creation, to make it whole and right again. Remember when he created it in the first place. On each of those days, he says, it is good. 
And then as he completes it, he says it's very good that physical things and bodies are not bad to God, that he's not displeased with them. And this is why he raises Jesus from the dead. Jesus is the pioneer who goes out ahead to show us God's great plans for when Jesus returns. And so what had taken place in Corinth was a teaching that what you do in the body doesn't matter. So therefore, if you have a sexual urge, satisfy it. Or you don't have to. It doesn't matter. And this is what had taken place is that some of the Corinthians who were inside the church were still participating probably in the cult prostitute system that was part of Corinth. Prostitution in the ancient world was considered normal, it was acceptable, and no one would have challenged it. And Paul has to stand against it because he sees a higher purpose for sexuality. He sees something more rich and profound, and that what we do in the body does matter, and that God gives us gifts inside of our bodies for us to enjoy and to delight ourselves in, but God assigns limits to that in order to bless us to allow for our freedom in it. And that was all being compromised. Wendell Berry, in his novel, Jaber Crow, he captures the problem well. This is what he says, is that we have a high view of God, but a low view of his works. That was what was happening there in Corinth. And friends, it happens to us today as well that the reaches and the fingers of Greco-Roman philosophy are still current today. You can think of the hymn, I'll Fly Away to Glory. It's animated much of American spirituality, where what we think of when it comes to salvation is being whisked away from the physical things of the world to be pure spirit relating to God. And there's been much gospel preaching that's been baptized under that heading, and it just simply is false. That Christians have always proclaimed the resurrection of the dead, that God will renew the world and make it whole and right and free it from its sinful sufferings. That's the Christian vision of salvation. And so then, of course, what we do in the body today matters because we have a Lord of the body, one who commands and controls, one to whom we owe our bodies because he has bought them at a great price. And so Paul is correcting their misguided ethics, and he's correcting the underlying problem. And he would correct our underlying problems as well, where we say it doesn't matter. It's not important. I've been made right with God, so does it really matter if I do this or that? Jesus is Lord of the body. He's concerned what you do with it. But this does raise a question for us. What is the way out? When we find ourselves, and we can all find ourselves from time to time in this kind of compromise and contradiction, where we import our selfish individuality into the church and we put ourselves in front of others, or when we find ourselves sexually compromised in our thoughts, in our words, in our deeds, and we find ourselves diving into sexual immorality, what is the way out? Because obviously, you can hear the sermon and feel incredibly defeated. But it's important to note what Paul does with this congregation. He does correct them, and he provides a firm hand. He says, how dare you, and don't you understand how wrong this is? But at the same time, in the midst of his firmness, he also 
calls them to the grace of God. Follow with me in verses 9 and 11. Much misunderstood verses here. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Typically, when this passage has been read, the focus has turned to those who are outside the church and say, yes, those who are outside the church and participate in these behaviors will not inherit the kingdom of God. It's a true deduction, but it also misses the point of Paul's argument. Remember what he says in verse 8. He says, but you yourselves wrong and defraud one another, even your own brother. And then he turns in verse 9, and he says, and do you not know that the unrighteous, and that word is typically and should be translated wrongdoer. You'll find an ESV note there in your Bible. Do you not know that the wrongdoer will not inherit the kingdom of God? Who did he just say was the wrongdoer? The Corinthians. That they had done wrong in defrauding one another. They had done wrong in taking advantage of one another. And now he is calling them back to who they are in Jesus Christ. And such were some of you, is his plea. Some of you were wrongdoers like this, but you've been rescued from that. Such, some of you were sexually immoral people. That that is simply true. When our deeds are written up in the register. Some of us were thieves. Some of us were greedy. Some of us were attracted to the same sex and acted out on it. Some of us were swindlers. Some of us were drunkards. All of these sins that Paul has already enumerated in chapter 5 out of the book of Deuteronomy, these were simple, basic Christian standards. Such were some of us, but he announces a tremendous statement at the end of verse 11, but, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified. He's declaring that something has happened. That when they came to faith in Jesus and were baptized and brought into the church, there was a transformation that takes place. And he's calling them to bring themselves into step with who God has declared them to be now in Christ. That this is what was happening in Corinth. Is that they were not walking in step with what God had declared them to be. That they were washed. That their former sins had been obliterated. That they were set apart, sanctified for God's purposes. That they were justified, that is, standing right with God. And that they're now free and liberated in front of Him. And He's appealing to them that they now walk in a manner consistent with this. And that they come along. And so He's calling them, and yes, He's correcting them. But He's wooing them back by the grace of God to say, yes, God in His grace has given you the power. God in His grace has liberated you. And He's now calling you not to stray into wrongdoing again, but to walk in freedom and life that He's extended to you. So put away the silly things. Cut it out. You don't have to live in that way. Now for many people, when they find themselves, though, in these ruts, 
when you find yourself participating in what Paul calls wrongdoing here, it's incredibly defeating. It's guilt-ridden. It is empty. And yet you often wonder, how do I get out? How do I exit this? Is there a pathway for me to find life again? Several weeks ago, I drove up to one of my friend's homes, and he was uh, out in the driveway with his garage door open. And I walked up and immediately was lusting over his garage. It was clean. It was neat. It was orderly. I asked to borrow something. He went right to his tool desk and found it immediately. He didn't know the internal conversation that was going on in my mind because I would never sit in my driveway with my garage door open. I'm embarrassed by my garage. Every time I clean it up and cast out the demons, seven more come back. It's a mess. I can't find anything. I don't know where my tools are. I can't even get over to them. We add stuff in. We take stuff out. It's just a complete mess. I do have a date on the calendar for the reckoning of the garage now. If any of you would like to come in free labor, I would be happy to have you. But it's embarrassing. I don't want to deal with it. So what do I do? It's the beauty of the electric door. <laughs> Just shut it. Keep it closed. And friends, this is what we like to do with our sins. We just like to shut the door, keep it from public sight. I've got it under control. All things are lawful for me. I'm justified. It's not as bad as everybody says it is. And we tend to then negotiate our obedience with God, and we keep the door closed. What Paul is appealing to us and what God would press on us today is that we're freed from that, that we don't have to live in that vicious cycle of guilt and then seeing somebody else's garage that looks well-ordered and their lives that are free from some of the things we may be suffering with and to be envious. But rather, we can open the door that we've been washed. God has done something to forgive our broken past and to remove it in the death and resurrection of Jesus. That we have been sanctified, we've been set apart for something else by the grace of God. That we have been justified, we've been given a new name in front of God, and God now counts us in the right because of Jesus and his death and resurrection on our behalf. And it is in all of that grace that you are welcome to then open the garage door and to blow it out and sweep it out and deal with whatever is in there and whatever has died in there. That's what he welcomes you to do. That's how the grace of God corrects a compromised and contradictory church. One that is taking people to court in its own selfish individualism. One that prioritizes its own interest over those of the body around it. It's how the grace of God appeals to a church that's sexually dysfunctional and disturbed. This is how God works with us. Let him have his way with you. And take the step. Have the courage to open the door and to let him work knowing that you're washed, knowing that you're sanctified, knowing that you're justified by the Lord Jesus and the Spirit of God. Let's pray. Father, as we weigh these things in this passage, we recognize ourselves it says, such were some of you, and this is us, 
We were wrongdoers in various stripes and of various shades, but you washed us, you sanctified us, you justified us through our Lord Jesus. And now in that humble place, a place of thanksgiving and joy, we ask that you give us grace that we move ahead and that we would glorify you in our bodies and with our actions, that we'd know what it is to serve you, that we'd be willing to journey into the dark places, the underlying issues, the hard things that we often don't want to address. Give us the courage to find your grace in those moments. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.